Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Is again going to be Luke 21, verses 5 through 38, known as the Olivet Discourse, the, the final discourse of Jesus' public ministry. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 880. And actually, this morning, our focus is going to be on verses 20 through 24. We've looked at the first part, and we now come to verses 20 through 24. You'll find those on page 881. And so let me read it for us. This is the very Word of God. Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And, not the, and those not who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles." until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we come before You this morning humbly asking that Your Spirit would lead us into truth. Pray that He would be with me as I preach this text, that He would guard my mouth and and cause my words to reflect His truth and to to communicate it boldly and clearly, and I pray that you would give to each one here ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth, that we might be sanctified by it and equipped to bring forth its uh, fruit to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this is now our fourth sermon on this discourse, and in our previous studies we have seen that the discourse begins when, when Jesus tells his disciples that the, the temple that they so admire, the, the temple that is in, in some ways the very center of, of their worlds, that this temple will one day be destroyed. He says, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. Naturally, when the disciples hear this, they they want to know when it will happen. And so they ask Jesus, they say, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? As we saw when we looked at that question, when the disciples ask when these things will be, when when they ask about the coming destruction of the temple, they assume that they are talking about the end of the world. They assume that they are talking about the eschatological end of the age, that end when when God will return to judge the living and the dead. They, They simply cannot conceive of the destruction of the temple apart from that end. And so the very first thing that Jesus tells them in response to their question is that the end will not be at once. There will be many who come saying the time is at hand. There will be some who even claim to be Him returned to earth. But the disciples should not be led astray, Jesus says, for the end will not be at once. 
And more than this, Jesus tells them that not only will the end be delayed, but that Jesus has a a job for them to do in the interim. He, He has something for them to do while they wait. He tells them that they will be persecuted. They will be dragged before synagogues and and kings, even by their own parents and siblings and and friends. People will lay hands on them and, and drag them to prison. But Jesus says that those persecutions will actually be an opportunity. It'll be their opportunity to bear witness to Him and to the Gospel. And that is their charge. Their charge as they wait is to be witnesses, to testify to the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done for His people. This is what they are to be busy doing in the interim. And Jesus attaches to that charge two promises which we looked at last Sunday. First, Jesus promises them that that the persecutions will not destroy them. Yes, some of them will lose their lives. Some of them will will lose their their physical lives in this age. But he promises them that, that even if they die, not a hair of their heads will perish. Jesus, through his Spirit, will bring them through to the end. By their endurance, they will gain their lives, he says. And second, he says that the Holy Spirit will equip them to take full advantage of the opportunities that are afforded to them. The the opportunities that come through their persecution, they will not have it in themselves to take full advantage of those, but the Holy Spirit will give them a mouth. The Holy Spirit will give them wisdom that their adversaries are, are not able to withstand or to contradict. They will be effective witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus' promise. And so he's told them that the end will not be at once. And he's told them that they have a job to do in the interim. And now, in verse 20, he finally gets to their question. He finally addresses their their question directly. They had asked when these things would be, when the temple would be destroyed. And Jesus tells them in verse 20, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. This is the sign. This is the sign that will tell them that these things are about to take place. When Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, then you will know that its desolation is about to take place. In verses 21 through 24, Jesus follows this clear statement with a vivid description of the desolation that will come. He he tells them how how severe it will be and and the full extent of, of where it will spread. And in those same verses... He gives them the reason for it. He tells them why it is coming. And then finally, at the very end of verse 24, Jesus tells them when it will end. He tells them when this desolation will will finally pass. He says that the desolation will end when the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. Now that last statement is a a pregnant statement. There's a a lot there. and We're going to hold that off for next week. We're going to deal with that statement more, more fully next week. But this morning, I want us to look at the first three things that Jesus tells his disciples in these verses. I want us to look at the, at the sign. I want us to look at the description. And then finally, I want us to see the reason for the desolation that is coming. So first, the sign. 
In verses 10 and 11, you'll remember that Jesus told his disciples that the destruction of the temple would be preceded first by international conflicts. You, you see it, their nation will rise against nation and, and kingdom against kingdom. So there'll be, there'll be wars, there'll be international conflicts. Second, there'll be natural disasters. There will be uh, earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences, Jesus says. And then third, there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. These are the signs that will precede the destruction of Jerusalem. And as we saw when we looked at those verses, historians tell us that indeed all of these things happened in the years leading up to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But you'll also remember that these aren't exactly precise signs. One commentator even called them non-signs. For, for when has there ever been a time, when has there ever been a generation when there were not wars and, and disasters and, and terrors, when were these things not commonplace? How could anyone use these signs to, to narrow the, the window on when the destruction of Jerusalem was going to take place? And so in a sense, they, they, they weren't all that helpful. Jesus was simply telling them that, listen, the life in this fallen world is going to continue until that day. But now, in verse 20, Jesus gives a much more precise sign he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that its desolation has come near. This is the, the precise sign. When Jerusalem is surrounded, you know that the day has come. Now to some, that doesn't seem like much of a prediction. It's sort of like predicting Alabama to win the, the college football championship or predicting Golden State to win the NBA finals. It, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure these things out. You, you, if you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you don't need to be a prophet to figure out that its desolation has come near. At least that's the way that we think. I want to tell you that that's not the way a first century Jew would have thought. They would not have shared that perspective. After all, they were God's chosen people. Their help was in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Their refuge was, was the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God who had brought his people up out of Egypt, the strongest nation on the earth with a strong right arm. If he had soundly defeated the Egyptians, certainly he can defeat whatever army comes against Jerusalem. They would have thought of the words of, of Psalm 2, let the nations rage, they would say. Our God holds them in derision. He will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces with a, a potter's vessel. Sure, the, the nations may appear to have the upper hand for a season, in fact, They've appeared to have the upper hand for quite a while. You'll remember that the, the Israelites had come back from their exile some five centuries earlier. And, and ever since that time, they had continued under foreign domination. In some sense, they had continued in exile. So, so yes, it had appeared for a while that the nations had had the upper hand. But the people of Israel knew how the story would end. Eventually, in the end, God's people would be vindicated. And there is no way that God would again allow his city and his temple to be destroyed. That is what the first century Jews believed. That is the, the hope that they clung to. They were God's people. And therefore, they were safe. The nations could, could never win. The nations could, could never desolate God's city or destroy God's temple. 
I suspect that when they saw the, their armies coming, they remembered the story that is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 6. Maybe you remember it. We're told that, that Syria was at war with, was it, with Israel. But the king of Syria was getting annoyed because every time that he would make a plan to attack Israel, it seemed that someone was telling the king of Israel exactly what he was going to do. And so he thought that he had a double agent in his camp. But finally his generals told him, they said, listen, it's not that you have a spy, it's that they have a prophet. They have this guy who, who can tell them exactly what you say in your, your most hidden chambers because God is with them. And so the king of Assyria naturally said, well, what we need to do then is get rid of this prophet. And so he, he searched and he found out that the prophet was in Dothan. And so we read, beginning uh, in verse 8, he says, he sent to Dothan horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So the king of Syria brings his, his armies to Dothan, the city where the prophet is, and he, he surrounds the city. And when the servant of the man of God, when the prophet's servant, when Elisha's servant wakes up early in the morning, he goes out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Naturally, when he, he sees the city surrounded, he thinks its desolation has come near. <laughs> he thinks this is the end. But Elisha says to his servant, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And so then Elisha prays for his servant. He says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Sure, you remember that story from Sunday school. You, you remember the, the vision of the, the, the horses and the chariots of fire that surrounded the city of Dothan, protecting the man of God. And those in the first century would have known that story too. They would have remembered it. And they would have thought if God could do that for the city of Dothan, simply because his prophet happened to be there, how much more could he, how much more would he protect Jerusalem and his temple? After all, this was his holy city. This was his house. This is what the first century Jews would have thought. They would have thought that, that Jerusalem was their refuge. Jerusalem was their protection. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. Jesus is saying that the day is coming when God will not protect Jerusalem. When you see it surrounded, that will not be the beginning of God's great work to deliver His people. But when you see the city surrounded, that will be the end. That will be the beginning of the desolation. That will be the moment when the temple is destroyed, when not one stone will be left upon another. Simply because it is Jerusalem will be no protection. And it's this, this, this desolation that Jesus describes so vividly in verses 21 through 24. Notice what he says. He says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. Jesus isn't exactly giving us a detailed picture of the events that will unfold, but rather he is, he is saying something about the severity of what will take place. 
First, he, he tells us that the destruction of Jerusalem will have far-reaching effects. People throughout Judea, not just in Jerusalem proper, will need to flee. And they will need to flee to the mountains because the city will provide them no protection. In fact, notice what he says. Those who are in the city will actually need to, to run away, and those who are in the country shouldn't come anywhere near. And that would have gone exactly against their instincts. In that day, when you saw the enemy coming, you fled to the city. You fled within the walls. That was their instinct. But Jesus is saying, no. The ones who find themselves in the city when the army comes, they are not the, the lucky ones. But they are the ones who need to run for their lives. The city will provide no protection. You must flee to the mountains. Jesus is challenging their, their basic assumption, their, their basic assumption that God would preserve, preserve Israel, that God would keep Jerusalem, that God would protect His temple. Jesus is saying that in that day, He will not. The city is going to fall. The walls will be breached. God will let it be desolated. That's hard for a first century Jew. It's hard for, for us to understand. And so, so Jesus goes on to reinforce the picture even further in verses 23 and, and 24. Notice what he says. He says, alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Again, in saying this, Jesus is, is not only showing us the, the severity, but the extent of, of the destruction that is coming. No one will be spared. No one will escape. No one will be shown mercy. In, in a time of, of war, those who, who might be shown mercy are those who are, who are most vulnerable. You might wage war against the men, but spare the women and children. But Jesus says, no. Even the women and children will suffer. Those, those most likely to elicit our compassion will not be Spare. They will all fall by the sword. They will all be led captive. They will all be trampled underfoot. And again, this is what historians tell us happened. There's some debate about the accuracy of his, his numbers, but the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when Rome came against Jerusalem, over a million Jews were killed, and another 100,000 were taken captive. Not a single Jew was left alive in the city. And he tells us that the mothers and the, the children were particularly persecuted. Many mothers had their children torn out of their arms to provide food for the starving masses. It's hard to imagine. It's a, it's a horror beyond our comprehension. And the question is, why? Why would God allow this to happen to his city? Why would God allow Jerusalem to be treated so by the Gentiles? Why would he allow it to be trampled underfoot? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 22, look at what he says. Jesus says, for these are days of vengeance. 
to fulfill all that is written. The reference to all that is written is clearly a reference to the Old Testament. This is, this is a reference to Old Testament prophecy, the predictions made by the Old Testament prophets. And what did the prophets say? Time and again they warned the people of Israel that if they would not repent and return to the Lord in faith and obedience, then judgment would come upon them. Then they would fall under God's wrath. We see it, for example, in some of the last words of the Old Testament. Hear what the prophet Malachi says. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all of the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall, be, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So the prophet Malachi is, is drawing a distinction. He's, he's drawing a distinction between the arrogant, the, the evildoers, and those who fear the Lord. The one, he says, will, will be utterly destroyed. They will be trampled underfoot. They will be burned up like stubble. The other will be saved and healed. And Jesus is, is referring to, to this prophecy, and he is saying that it applies to Jerusalem. That the people of, of Jerusalem are going to be trampled underfoot. That they are going to be counted among the arrogant and the evil doers. But why? Why would the people of, of Jerusalem be, be counted among the wicked? Why would they be counted among the evil doers? They are God's people after all. But of course we've seen the answer to that in our study of Luke's Gospel. Because what we've seen is that the people of Jerusalem, they have taken their stand against the Lord's anointed. As John tells us, Jesus has come to his own, and his own have not received him. He came calling them to repentance, and, and, and they shunned him, denying the need. They are, after all, God's people. God owes them. They are the ones who have earned his, his blessing. They have no need of a Savior. They are the healthy. They are the righteous. And so they have rejected Jesus Christ. They have rejected the Lord's anointed. With the people of Psalm 2, they have aligned themselves with the nations, shaking their fist in God's faith and saying, we will not be ruled by your Messiah. And because they have rejected Jesus, and because they have denied their need of Him, Jesus says, that desolation will come upon Jerusalem. They did not know their day of visitation. They did not know that which would bring them peace. They did not know the one who came to bring them salvation. And so, having rejected their Savior, they must now suffer God's wrath. This is why Jesus calls the desolation that is coming an act of vengeance. We don't like that word. We tend to think of vengeance as a, as a bad thing, as, as something that you shouldn't do. People shouldn't take revenge. They, they shouldn't seek vengeance. And 
It is a bad thing. It is wrong when we take vengeance into our own hands. We, we have no right to take vengeance upon our enemies. But remember, when God tells us that, that we are not to take vengeance on our in- enemies, He does not say that, that we are not to take vengeance because vengeance is in itself wrong. But what does He say? He doesn't say vengeance is wrong. He says vengeance is mine. I will repay. I am the one who has the, with the right to, to judge. Vengeance is not wrong. Vengeance is, is simply paying back what is owed to the one who has done wrong. We have no right to take vengeance into our own hands. We are not the judge. But He is. And vengeance belongs to Him. And He will take it. We serve a God who will judge evildoers. We we, we serve a God who will punish the wicked. Think back to God as He reveals Himself to, to Moses, as it's recorded for us in the book of Exodus. God reveals Himself as a a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But in the same breath, He reveals Himself as a God who will by no means clear the guilty. Or as the NIV says it, a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. God will repay the wicked. He he will repay evildoers according to their works. He will take vengeance. And we're not used to talking this way. We we, we feel a little bit uncomfortable. We almost feel a little bit embarrassed for God. Have you ever had someone in your family who, who regularly loses their temper and does rash things and you almost feel a little bit embarrassed for them? You almost kind of wish that you could protect them from themselves? Well, well we feel this way about God sometimes when he, when he speaks this way. God, you know, you don't need to talk that way. It's almost a little bit embarrassing. You know, you're, you're, you're ruining your reputation. We need to understand God is not embarrassed. Through his prophets, he says again and again, I will not leave the guilty unpunished, even if the guilty are my chosen people, even if the guilty reside in Jerusalem. For I am a God who shows no partiality. I will repay each one according to his deeds, both Jew and Gentile. He doesn't just speak this way in the Old Testament. It's there in the New Testament, too. The Apostle Paul picks up this same theme in Romans chapter 2. He writes, God will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, for them there will be wrath and fury. And just in case you missed it, he says it again. He goes on immediately to say there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is who God reveals himself to be. This is the God who is. This is the God who is a consuming fire. He is a God who who cannot and and will not tolerate sin. He is a God who, who cannot and will not leave the guilty 
unpunished. And so if you are guilty, and you are, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if you are guilty, you must die. You are under a sentence of death. The desolation that that came upon Jerusalem is but a foreshadow of the judgment that awaits you at the end of the age. And we need to know this. We need to to recognize this. There was a a moment in Jesus' ministry where where some came to him and they said to him, did you hear about the Galileans? The Galileans who who Pilate slaughtered and, and mixed their blood with their own sacrifices. And Jesus asked them, he said, do you really think that they were worse than everyone else? Is that what you think? He said, do not think that, but rather you repent or you likewise will perish. Their judgment was not a sign that they were worse. Their judgment was a foreshadow of the judgment that will come upon all. It's the judgment that waits all sinners. We are all under a sentence of death. And we must know this because it is this that makes the gospel good news. For the gospel of Jesus Christ says that he has died in your place. It's what we're about to celebrate at this table. His body was was broken. His blood was shed for you. He died in your place as your substitute. the, The Savior of all who believe in him. If you receive him as Lord, then you will be united with him in his death so that you do not have to die on your own. You will die as, the sin, as your sin requires, but you will die in Him. And Paul says that if you die in Him, you will also be raised with Him. It's why John can say that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. But of course, the contrary is also true. If you reject Him, as the people of of Jerusalem rejected Him, if you will not believe in Him, if you will not receive Him as Lord, then you will stand before Him on your own. And you will die your own death. That is the holy and righteous vengeance of God. The vengeance that was poured out on Jerusalem. The vengeance that awaits all people at the end of the age. And so we must ask ourselves, have we believed in Him? Have we received Him? Or with the people of Jerusalem, have we rejected Him? For being a a part of His church, being in the South, being an American, none of these things is what reconciles us to God. God shows no partiality. He will judge all men. The question is, will you stand before Him in Christ? Or will you stand before Him on your own? The people of Jerusalem chose to stand on their own because they thought Jerusalem was their refuge. But Peter would go on to say to those same people, there is but one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, they will never be put to shame. They will know eternal life. But those who reject Him, those who who stand apart from Him, for them is reserved the judgment that we saw in preview 
fall upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justly and, and rightly sentenced to eternal death. And you will die. The question is, will you die in Christ? Or will you die on your own? If you die on your own, you will drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. But you can be spared that cup because there is one who has already drunk it. There is one who, who has already taken upon himself God's wrath that you might instead know his blessing. Put your faith in him and you will not perish, but will have eternal life. That is the promise of the gospel. That is the gospel that we celebrate as we come to this table now. And it's because that gospel offers life even to sinners like us that we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Pray with me. Father God, we pray that we would look upon the destruction of Jerusalem and our hearts would be softened that we would not see a particularly rebellious people, but that we would see a people just like us. And Father, that we would remember that their judgment is our judgment, and that our only hope of salvation is to stand before you covered in the blood of your Son. And so Father God, now we come before you asking that you would give us hearts to believe and to receive your Son as our Savior and Lord, that you would cover us with his blood, that you would justify us, that you would sanctify us, that you would equip us to live as, as his followers and as your children, all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.